Good morning. I put these on, they change my perspective a little bit. <laughs> Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 16? Mark chapter 16, we'll read verses 9 through 13. And while you're turning there, I don't know um, whether John the Lesser and John the Greater uh, drew straws to see who was going to get this part of Mark. Uh, I'm happy that it is not me. <laughs> All right. Let's read the very words of God. I'll read while you follow. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Praise God for the hearing and the reading of his word. Good morning. And here we are, last two weeks in Mark, and we're dealing with controversial verses that are in your Bible. First, how did we get to where we're at? Last week, John preached a message on those that showed up at the tomb. The women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome were the ones that were there that came to the tomb, that came to anoint Jesus' body, uh, preparing him for, uh, literally, it's embalmment is what they were doing, with it would be the similar thing that we do today. And it tells us in verse 8, or we'll start in verse 7, it says, but go, when they went to the tomb, the angels that were there, we find, I, I, just like the other text when it says in here, when it says that they went in and they say, and the angel says, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? The tomb is empty. The grave clothes are still there. But Jesus is not. They said to the women in verse 7 of Mark chapter 16, but go tell his disciples and Peter, He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. John rightfully spoke of Peter last week, that it wasn't the fact that Peter was special. It's the fact that Peter needed special care. Peter was the one who had fallen seemingly furthest of all of them. The one who had denied Jesus three times the one who had spoken so boldly that he would never do such a thing, and yet he did exactly that thing. And in verse 8, it says that they, the women, they went out, of the, out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They had gone expecting to see a dead man and had in turn seen something they didn't expect. They were prepared for one thing and totally unprepared for the other thing. We don't know exactly what form the angels were in. And by this I mean that there are times that we see throughout Scripture, we see that the angels appear in the form of men, there's other times that they, they, uh, they appear in the form of frightful 
soldiers of God, whatever it was, whoever they saw, in the form that they saw them, in the, the, the brightness that they saw these angels in the tomb, that fear, it, it struck fear into their hearts. Just like we would be if we were to go to a room that was dark and flip on the lights and somebody would be standing there. It would frighten us. And so they were frightened. We remember that they were concerned with how they would remove the stone from the tomb. The stone that was chained and sealed there. We can't forget that. We remember that they approached the tomb and the stone was moved away. It's important to note here that the stone was not moved away to let Jesus out. It was moved away to let the women in. So that they could receive this message, this divine directive, to go and tell the disciples and Peter. And they fled. They were afraid. And that's how verse 8 ends. The problem is verses 9 through 20. Today we're only speaking of 9 through 13. And it would be dishonest of us not to deal with verses 9 through 20 because they're in every one of your Bibles. Those verses sit there, but they have a caveat. Sometimes they're bracketed out. Sometimes they're in a different font. Sometimes they have words before them or sometimes the words after them. But in general, it says, my Bible is very minor and it says, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Yours might say that the oldest manuscripts don't contain verses 9 through 20. So we have to talk about them a little. And then we have to talk a little bit about why we have chosen to preach through them. We have to talk a little bit about why they're in your scripture. So that abrupt ending of verse 8. Is problematic, was problematic for some people. We understand that the oldest texts, the oldest manuscripts we have in our possession, stop at verse 8. We also have to address the fact that second century believers, such as Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, preached out of verses 9 through 20. That apparently their copies, second century, so you're talking about the early to mid-100s, they had it. They had these verses that were there. We can understand by examining the text, examining the Scripture, that these verses were probably added somewhere in the early 100s. We know with confidence that they aren't part of the original text just for the way it's written. Even in our English translations, it doesn't sound like the rest of Mark. We see in verses 9, 10, and 11 that it just seems to be just tacked on to this story about the women at the tomb. It makes no real sense in the relation to the way Mark is written, in the purpose that Mark was written, uh, to understand where those are at. The sentence construction is different, and it is far different when you look at it in the Greek. It does not look anything like the rest of Mark. What we can ascertain from this, well, I should tell you, say this. So what happens with these letters? What happens with these Gospels? Remember we said way before that Mark was written by a, a, a disciple of Peter named Mark. And it was the teaching of Peter, or sermon of Peter, that he wrote down, and it was sent to the church in Rome a church that was undergoing persecution or would be going undergoing persecution. 
It was sent as a, to help them, to buoy them up, to understand the Scripture, that what they believe is true. So when this letter is sent, generally these letters, there are at least two copies of these letters. One is kept by the person who wrote it, and another copy is sent to the place it was going. Sent to the church in Rome, received by the church in Rome, that this letter, we know the, the number of copies that are available, and the key word there is copies, is that people took this letter and they copied it down themselves. A person visiting the church in Rome or knowing people in Rome or a Christian in Rome or traveling through Rome that became a believer and heard this being read, heard this letter being read, a letter from the mouth of Peter himself, one of the apostles, would have said something like this, I need a copy of that to take back to my church, to my people, to my family. Do you mind if I write this down? The ink and the pen would have come out. The parchment would have been found, which was very expensive at the time, and they would have copied this letter. Now, these weren't professional copyists. These weren't people that were employed in that profession. They would have been people like you and I. Imagine if we had a copy of the Bible and you, you, you said to yourself, hey, can I get a copy of that? Let me just write that, let me write that gospel down as we sat here. We know for a fact that within all these copies that are out there, that there are sometimes some spelling errors. Because these are non-professional people. The craziest part is how close they are to each other. That the spelling errors make no difference. But that doesn't explain the longer ending in Mark. See, herein lies the rub. Copies of the letter go out. Our oldest copies look Stop at verse 8. Copies of these letters go out throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the churches in Asia Minor, throughout the churches in North Africa. And people are making hand copies of it all the time, all the time. And what we can surmise is what seems to be obvious is that at some point in time, somebody started making a copy of this letter who was familiar with the other Gospels, who knew Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, who knew the Gospel of Luke, who knew the Gospel of John. Because what you see here in verses 9 through 20 is clearly lifted from those Gospels. You see, they just weren't happy with that abrupt ending of the Gospel of Mark. They tried to what is referred to as harmonizing the Gospels, so that they all kind of sounded the same. That's why this is bracketed off in your Bible, saying that the oldest copies of this Gospel don't have these words. These words that don't fit in form or verbiage or sentence structure. But man, those copies are old where it's added. And throughout the centuries before the oldest copies were discovered, people used them and preached out of them. What we do know is that 9 through 20 is not the inspired Word of God. Although we do know that it was taken from the inspired Word of God in the other Gospels. We are choosing to preach through these again because they are, number one, it's in all your Bibles. It's sitting right there in Mark. Number two... The things that are said in verses 9 through 20 are found and confirmed elsewhere in the Scripture. There's nothing that is obtuse or heretical that's in those verses. Which is why we have chosen to preach through them. You won't find anything in these verses that are not elsewhere being able to be compared. We're going to do a little walkthrough Luke and some of Matthew and some of John when we go through 9 through 13 here. One of the other important things to realize too is that the words that we are reading here, 9 through 13 and then 14 through 20, we have to remember that this was not received by the church in Rome. That these, we can't take that as context and what they received. 
that their language stopped in verse 8. That their gospel stopped in verse 8 and that's all they got. These verses were received by somebody else, some other churches in time, and passed down through history. But I think what we're going to find is we're going to find some fascinating things about what is said here, what we hear about the doubting disciples. And we're going to see where it comes from in the other Gospels. So we might as well dive right in. We're going to hear about the witness to the risen saviors, the risen Savior. We're going to hear about those doubting disciples. And we're going to talk about what it is about faith in the Savior who truly saves. Verse 9. Now after he had risen, early on the first day of the week, we recall, if you want to note it down, we're not going to turn there, Matthew chapter 27 verse 64 tells us about the chained and sealed stone that was in front of the tomb. We know that, the, that, that, that after he had risen, so he was gone and the women came. They found that empty tomb. They found the, the, the angels there. They found that the, those that were witnessing, telling them to go and preach. Go and tell, excuse me, go and tell the disciples. Go and tell them that Jesus is risen. Don't look for the living amongst the dead. For He has risen indeed. Mary's mission then was to go, one of the ones that was to go and tell the disciples and Peter the good news, the great news, the unbelievable news that the Savior was alive, just as He had told them. That was Mary's mission. Let's turn to John chapter 20. Take a moment and turn there and let's look and see what we find. We'll go to verse 11 about Mary Magdalene and we'll start there. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. He there had been lying. The body was no longer there. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. She couldn't recognize Jesus. Fifteen, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. The love that Mary had for Jesus drew her to that tomb. Her sadness struck down that the body was gone, that somebody had stolen the body, which was not necessarily uncommon at this time. That her chance to say the final farewells were gone from her. In mourning she was. And nothing to mourn. In 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. The sheep recognized the voice of the shepherd immediately. At that moment, I can't imagine the emotional feelings that she would have had that would have been overwhelming to her. 
trying to understand the events that were occurring at that moment, a shock to the system. You know, car accidents come out of the blue. That's why they're called accidents. Nobody plans for them. right? The shock to the system, sometimes what happens in a car accident is you forget everything that occurred because it's too much for the brain to comprehend. It's too traumatic for the brain to comprehend. Yet in this instance, the shock, the stunning shock, the hearing the voice and knowing it immediately, it was Jesus. Jesus was standing there, the Savior risen. It was true what He said would happen. We can't imagine what she was going through at that moment. It had to be overwhelming. It had to be tears of joy. We can imagine her falling at His feet. Because this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. No greater mountain to climb than this. No greater thing in history than this has ever happened. Or ever will happen. Jesus risen from the tomb. And He says in verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to My brethren and say to them, I ascend to My Father and Your Father and My God and Your God. It says in verse 18 that Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that He had said these things to her. Now we turn back to Mark. And we look at verse 9. At the end of verse 9, it says this, almost as a place marker, as an identifier. Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. That's mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, where we have that. This is the Mary. Perhaps it's important that we identify that Jesus performed a miracle on her. Jesus had healed her. That she had that relationship with Him because He had done this thing that she could not do for herself for her. That He had saved her from these demons. Something that she could not do herself. She could not cast them out. She could not heal herself. When she saw the shepherd, when she heard the shepherd's voice, the one who had given her salvation here was now risen and would be the one that would give her salvation eternally. Before we go into verse 10, where are the disciples right now? Somewhere in Jerusalem. Somewhere in hiding. Go to John chapter 20, verse 19. John 20, 19, it tells us what they were doing. It says, So when it was evening of that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... We're going to stop right there. They were hiding because they were afraid. Their teacher, their disciple maker, their Lord, their Savior was dead. They had been there for the triumphal entry on Lamb Selection Day. They had seen Jesus overturn the tables. They had seen the confrontations of Jesus. At one point in time, they were buoyed high by what was happening. And they were brought oh so low in the garden. When the soldiers came, 500 to 1,000 soldiers came. What always amazes me is that they forgot that scene where Jesus announces His name and all the soldiers hit their knees. The ones who came to arrest Him. Man, they should have seen something different happening here. They should have seen and should have remembered what Jesus had told them. 
but I wouldn't have done any different. This is too much a shock to the system, too much like a car wreck. Just too much to handle. We can't be too hard on them that they are in hiding. I mean, things that are happening here would never happen again. Would only happen this time. This single time. These disciples that were so close to Jesus now out on the fringes. Now at the edges watching the crucifixion. Watching a man beaten almost to death then being nailed to a cross and hung up. I sure would not have been thinking or remembering the words that he told me that these things would have happened or were supposed to happen. I probably wouldn't have remembered him talking about forgiving sins that he could do it. I might not have remembered that he actually calmed the seas or that he healed a withered hand. Because you have to remember, these things are coming like machine gun fire at them. One thing after another. One thing that that could be stopped at any time if you wanted to, but one thing after another is going from bad to worse, and from worse to even worse than that. Horrible things happening one after the other. Too much for them to comprehend. That's why Mary at the tomb, when she recognizes his voice, it just—it had to be overwhelming. It, it, just a shock to the system. Just unbelievable things are there, and she sees him first. We can now imagine that verse ten of of Mark. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. We could see Mary just running to this location, knowing where they're at. We can hear her pounding on the door, let me in, I have news to tell you, things you won't believe. Begging to be let into that room, I can guarantee it wasn't a little... I can guarantee she was pounding on that door, that she had to give them this news, the best news that could ever be. News unlike anybody has ever heard. She had to give them to them urgently. She had to tell them she had orders from the Master. The joyful, happy Mary Magdalene in front of the door, I can't wait till they hear what I have to tell them. The best news ever. Just open the door and let me in. And you will go from mourning and weeping to joy and gladness and happiness unlike you've ever felt before. Verse 11. They opened the door. They let her in. You can just imagine how excited she was to tell them this news. And you know, we can't miss the humanness of this either. She's the first one. I'm the first one who's seen Jesus. I'm the one who needed so much saving, I had seven demons inside of me. And He saved me. And then I saw Him first. Not to hold that above people, but to say, He has so blessed me by being able to see Him To see the risen Jesus, not a bloodied, battered Jesus, but a Jesus in new form with the signs of the covenant on His hands and feet and His side. I can't wait to tell them. She knows all these guys. Won't they be happy when they hear it? When they heard that He was alive, and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Not that they said, oh shucks, you're just kidding. 
they actively denied what she was saying. They absolutely refused her witness of what happened. They turned away from the words that she said. They closed their ears. Perhaps much like those Pharisees before they stoned Stephen. When confronted with the truth, they refused to believe. These ones who had followed Jesus, who had been taught by Jesus, who had seen the miracles, who had heard the prophecies about what would happen, refused to believe the thing that he said would happen did happen. And here is the witness, the one who had seven demons cast out of her, who was an actively, who was the active recipient of one of his miracles, has now seen the greatest miracle of all. And they refused to believe it. They refused to hear her words. They refused to hear that she heard the voice of the shepherd. That as a good sheep does, she heard his voice. And that obeyed what he told her to do. Faced with the evidence that would convince others, they doubt to the highest degree. They refuse to believe regardless of what she says. We forget that just like Thomas, they were all like that. Now we change scenes as in these longer ending of Mark, we go to verse 12, a walk in the country, we'll call it. So we had that first passage that was section that was drawn from John's gospel, and this one will be drawn from Luke's gospel. It says in verse 12, after that, He appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. This is a much truncated telling of the walk to Emmaus. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 24. We won't belabor the walk to Emmaus because, as I remember when we, my wife and family and I first started attending this church, that we, many years ago, uh, John Weathersby preached through Luke. And I remember him preaching through the walk to Emmaus. And that is actually, I believe, still available online that you can listen to. It's phenomenal. And I recommend it to everyone. But this is where the longer ending to the desire, the desire to harmonize the gospel pulls from Luke chapter 24, this walk to Emmaus, and it says in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had taken place. They had a lot to talk about. We know that in verse 18 it says one of them named Cleopas was there when it tells us that Jesus approached them but they were prevented in verse 16 from recognizing him. Verse 17 says, And Jesus said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. Cleopas answered in verse 18 and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Two men probably looking dumbfounded. Who is this fool who doesn't know what's going on? How could he possibly not know this, the things that have occurred here in this city? I mean, where is this guy from? You could see these two, three people standing there, Cleopas and his buddy, 
and Jesus and the two, Cleopas and his friend, looking at each other just like incredulous. Who is this guy? I mean, he's obviously from in the area because he walked up to us. He's not in a carriage, not in a cart. He's from the area, so he has to know. Doesn't he know that this one who claimed to be the king of the Jews, that they claimed he was so much not the king of the Jews that they crucified him outside the city where the Gentiles would be crucified at, away from the temple? How can he not know these things? Where have you been? Have you have your head under a rock that you haven't heard of these things? And then Jesus, as Jesus is wont to do at this time, and he said to them, What things? And they said, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping it was going to be that scene, that triumphal entry into the city, that the, the takeover, get rid of the Romans. Still stuck in the old ways, still stuck in the old desires that they have, not seeing that their true problem is slavery to sin and that they are going to die at some point in time and they're going to face their judge. And you're either going to hell or you're going to heaven. Hell without Jesus, heaven with Jesus. But we were hoping that it was He that would redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. 22. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. And they did not find His body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And some who were some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman had said, but, they, but him they did not see. This is where that truncated version in Mark is pulled because it isn't about the walk to Emmaus that, Mark, that they've added on to Mark. The problem is next, is what they say here. Back to Mark chapter 16, verse 13, it says, well, let me just clean this up a little bit in 12. He came in different form, right? This is, a, this is important. The Greek word there is morphe, right? Where we get, uh, uh, where we get morphing into, where we get all those terms of morph, of changing, right? Jesus is in a different form. It doesn't mean that he's in a spiritual form or anything like that, but he is in a resurrected form. He doesn't look like the, the bloodied, beaten, nailed body that they had last seen. He is resurrected in form, in new, in a new glorious form that they can't recognize Him at. That's why they don't see Him at first. It says there, in verse 12, it says, It appeared to them in a different form. The two of them were walking along in their way to the country. Remember in, in that Luke chapter of, of Emmaus, that it says that He revealed in the Scriptures to them who He was. They still didn't see it. He went through all the Scriptures in the Old Testament to say, look at the prophecies about what would happen. Can't you see what is going on? And then when they sat down to eat, that is when He is revealed, when He breaks the bread, when they actually see Him for who He is. And He disappears at that moment. We pick that, all those verses in Luke are picked up here in one verse, in chapter in Mark chapter 16, this added version on verse 12, and it says, While they were walking along on their way to the country, their good walk to the country spoiled by great news. So much so that they stopped their journey to this town of Emmaus and they turn around. Because just like Mary Magdalene, you have to hear these things that have happened. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17 before we close out that section of Mark. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. And then we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. God's judicial system, it says here in verse 6, it says, 
on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now turn to chapter 19 and look at verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now I want you to think about this. We are dealing with good, God-fearing Jews, these disciples, that are very familiar with God's law, very familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, very familiar with what it means to have witnesses. They are already fully aware of the kangaroo court that Jesus and the false witnesses that were brought up against him. They have seen one witness in Mary who has said, I have seen the risen Savior. I have seen him alive. And now it says in verse 13, this walk in the country that has now become a walk, a hurried walk back to Jerusalem a hurried pounding on the door to tell these people, the mourning and weeping disciples, uh, the ones who are sad for themselves that their leader is gone, even though somebody has reported that he's still alive, pounding on the door, you've got to hear us. You've got to hear what we have to say. It says in 13, they went away and reported it to the others, to the other disciples, but they did not believe them either. That's the important part of this added section of Mark. We have two cases of witnesses and two cases of doubting disciples. We have two cases of witnesses who have seen the risen Savior and two cases of disciples who have enough witnesses to confirm a matter per the Judaic law and they refuse to believe it based on the evidence that they have. They refuse to believe that Jesus is risen again. It is impossible for them to believe this. There's just not enough for us. It's not enough for us. God has sent them three witnesses to a risen Lord, to a risen Lord in the resurrected form, and they have outright denied that witness. They have gotten what they needed to believe, and they've refused to believe it. So we have the witness, and we have their doubt. And that's where we end today. So what does that mean for us? What can we learn from this longer narrative? Number one, when it stopped at verse 8, it was enough for the church in Rome. That was enough a witness to the risen Savior for them in Rome. We have a whole book full of the witness, not only, not only of the gospel stories, but we have the, the gospel narratives, but we have the prophetic words of Jesus Himself. We have the prophetic words of the prophets pointing to a risen Savior. We have the words, overwhelming words of the witnesses that we have here. We have such a witness in our Scripture that it even points out in our Scripture when this thing doesn't necessarily belong here, but we're just leaving it here just so you know that we're not leaving anything out. There is nothing hidden in this Scripture from us. We can look throughout this and we can find areas where it will say, we just don't understand what this means. We're not hiding it from you. We're not taking it out and away from you so that you think that something is hidden, but you can trust that this Word, that God's Word that has come to you, is real and true. So much to the point that we're saying that this section isn't Scripture, but it's drawn from Scripture. Everything that happened in this verse, these longer endings of Mark, comes from other sections of Scripture. You can trust in the witness that are you, you are given in the Bible. You can trust in the Word that God has given to you, that all Scripture is God-breathed 
and worthy to be taught from, to be rebuked by. You see, the problem is with us. We want more. We've all run into those people, why doesn't God just do this? Why doesn't He just show me this? Why doesn't He just write my name on the side of the mountain over here? Because Jesus Himself said in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man said, well just, He desired that drop of water on His tongue to cool His tongue as He burned. He said, the gulf is inseparable. You can't go between one and the other. He said, well then just send Lazarus back to tell my family. Tell them the truth. And he said, what did he say? You have the prophets, the patriarchs. You have enough information to know what the truth is. Even if I were to raise a dead man from the grave, you still won't believe. Lo and behold, God, a dead man is raised from the grave. Our Savior is raised from the grave. And we have this entire book testifies to that. Testifies to that. As we spoke in Sunday school class today, that there is a scarlet thread that runs from the beginning to the end that testifies to our Savior. That testifies to the fact that I have never seen a risen Jesus. I will one day. And I will fall at the feet but I have never seen Jesus alive. But I know that He lives. I know that my Savior lives. I know that He has done exactly what He said He would do for all those who believe in Him. That we are oh so lucky to not be the doubting disciples at this point in time. To be so forlorn and downcast and downtrodden and woe is me to know that through the Scripture, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit in us, that we know that Jesus lives. I pray that everyone here today knows that Jesus lives. That, that this thing that was done on the cross, this thing that Mary witnessed, this, this, this thing that, that, that Cleopas and his buddy witnessed of Jesus alive. Ah, man, to, to be those people. See the, to see Jesus first. Like that. To know the truth and then to be faced with people that don't believe. And I know it's sometimes frustrating when you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and they won't listen. Your friends and your family won't listen one iota to what you're telling them. I know how frustrating it can be. Imagine how frustrating it was for Mary Magdalene and these other two disciples who had seen Him. Imagine what it felt like for them. But we have the book that tells us and the Spirit testifies to the truthfulness of it inside of us. That testifies to this high point of all of creation, of Jesus risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The world forever changed. Never to be the same. We are recipients of and understand that thing that the angels long to understand and can't. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Think about this. These angels, the ones who are around the throne of God, crying out, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. They look at the work of salvation, what God has done through the Son, to save man who can't save himself. And it says in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1, it was revealed to them and they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This thing of salvation is so amazing this thing, the work of the cross, is so incredible and so unbelievable that the angels themselves long to understand God's working in this. That long to understand how this is possible, that these things could be done. How it is possible, Jesus, that when we don't see you, how that you don't know these things, 
and he points to all the things that point to, yeah, I know exactly what happened, and you should too, to the point of seeing that I am risen again. That I have done this work that you couldn't do yourselves. We can't be too hard on the disciples, because we would have probably been exactly the same. This small band of fishermen, tax collector, became the proclaimers of the word unto their deaths. These fearful people in an upper room, weeping and mourning, became proclaimers of the world throughout the Roman Empire and then throughout the world. To the point that some were sawn in half, some were run through with spears, some were crucified upside down. Take your pick of horrible ways to die, and they had them. We see here at this longer ending of Mark, we see, we see quite frankly that God saves sinners who can't save themselves. That God provides for those who can't provide for themselves. That we have the sufficient witness in the word of what God has done to save those who believe in his son. That we have overwhelming evidence for us. That we can trust in Jesus' cross-bearing work. And not only the cross where he bore the wrath of God, but we also know that the tomb was empty and our Savior is risen. He is risen indeed. That we are saved by that work and by His blood. This thing that they couldn't believe until they saw it for themselves, which we'll talk about next week, that thing that we do believe. I would hope that all that are here today believe in that Savior that risen Christ, that Jesus who went to the cross and who rose again. Let's all pray. Glorious and Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I know I say those sorts of things every week, but I mean, there, what more can we say? We have been given your holy word for us to edify us, to grow us as the witness to your work throughout history to bring about salvation for sinners the most amazing miracle of all. We ask that you strengthen us so that we would know for sure as much as we possibly can Jesus, that we would know that 